If you want to understand the typical American making a very average salary, you'd have to compare us to a king of the ancient world. We actually eat better than kings. I mean, one way to look at it is we've all become kind of kings in our own mind. And I think the culture of entitlement has even increased in the last 10 to 20 years Autonomy. on personal identity issues. Yeah. How dare you not address me in the way that I choose to be addressed? So that sense of entitlement pulls apart from any idea that actually, no, I am accountable in an ultimate way yeah. to God and to his moral principles. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and get the White Horse Inn delivered to your inbox each week. Every Monday, you'll receive a link to listen to the show along with program details, social media memes to share, and terms to learn. And when you sign up, you'll also receive a free audio download on the topic of justification. Just head to whitehorseinn.org slash newsletter. That's whitehorseinn.org slash newsletter. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hey there, and welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal. Last week, we aired part one of my discussion with St. Louis University professor Michael McClymond, author of The Devil's Redemption, A New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism. The focus of that conversation chiefly revolved around the views of David Bentley Hart, whose new book, That All Shall Be Saved, is currently generating a lot of discussion and media coverage. On this week's episode, we'll air the second part of my conversation with Dr. McClymond as we talk about issues related to the life of Pentecostal preacher-turned-universalist Carlton Pearson, whose story was featured on an episode of This American Life and was later made into a feature-length film by Netflix. So here's the second part of my conversation with Michael McClymond. Dr. McClymond, thanks for being back with us for the second program. It's good to be with you. So on the last episode, I briefly referred to uh, the Netflix film Come Sunday about the life of Carlton Pearson. When that film was first released, it, of course, generated a lot of positive news coverage, including this story from NPR titled The Evangelical Bishop Who Stopped Believing in Hell. So, again, you know, whenever you have, first of all, the fact that it was made a Netflix film shows that there's something that's of interest here. It's New York Times, Time Magazine, NPR, Netflix. They're interested in this because it fits the narrative that they want to affirm. They may not necessarily affirm universalism, but it certainly tracks with the thing that they want to promote. And that is, there ain't no such thing as hell. Right. And it's interesting you mentioned the, the former Bishop Carlton Pearson, because this man was almost like an adopted son of Oral Roberts. He's in these African-Americans. So he, you know, jokingly said, I'm the black mm -hmm. son, yeah. you know, of the family. Spent a lot of his time in the living room of this famous evangelist, the founding figure in Oral Roberts University. But he got into the pulpit of a large Pentecostal church. Church of God in Christ was the background of Pearson. But anyway, this is a large charismatic and evangelical church, about three to 4,000. And he got into the pulpit one day and said, hey, I just made a great discovery that everyone is saved already. Like nothing has to happen. And that created tremendous turmoil in the congregation. About 90% of the people ended up leaving. And Over the course of a, a couple of, months, right? Of some months, yeah. yeah, some months. And then Pearson, who had preached from that pulpit against the Unitarian Universalists, ultimately began attending their congregation. Mm -hmm. And then what happened to Pearson, as I documented in my book, is he drifted into new thought, 
which is an esoteric doctrine that all of us are divine within. And that kind Jesus, of a pantheistic view, he yes, says? Yeah. Yes, exactly. In fact, there's some really alarming aspects of his book, Gospel of Inclusion. There's a chapter in there called The Gospel of Evil. And what he says in this chapter is that evil could not exist unless it were part of God. Hmm. This is a direct statement. And he said, all of us have a beast and a beauty within, and we need to embrace our beast and let it express itself as well as the yeah. beauty, which really makes you wonder what are the moral implications in his own life or lives of others for what he's preaching. Let me read you a few lines from the NPR article about Pearson when the movie came out. It's fascinating. It says, uh, about 15 years ago, Carlton Pearson had what you might call a revelation. It occurred to him that ideas that had informed his entire adult life about heaven and hell and what it takes to avoid one and enter the other were just not true. First of all, I love the way that NPR is selling the story. I mean, if you think about it, it occurred to Carlton Pearson that this idea of hell just isn't true. Actually, if you watch the movie and if you read his books, he's convinced that God spoke to him which is, of course, not something that NPR wants to promote. It's, a, it's something occurred to him. <laughs> but we know that NPR is a perfectly neutral, Very neutral. publicly funded, taxpayer-supported <laughs> entity that doesn't take a stand on any kind of theological issues, right? It's just the way, yeah. You hear the irony dripping. Exactly, right. Irony in my voice. It just um, occurred to him. Notice this idea of revelation, direct revelation from God supporting universalism. This is a theme that came up all through my research, I found that many of the key figures in the early stages of universalism, not everyone who's a universalist, but often those who were pace setters and pioneers in different groups of uh, historically, that they often had uh, paranormal experiences. Visions. Visions. Jakob Burma, who influenced many of the later universes. He wasn't technically a universist himself, but he had this vision of uh, when sunlight did he uh, in the early 1600s. Okay. Sunlight glinting off of a pewter dish. And in that one moment, he said he learned more than he could have learned in decades of study. He saw all reality at that point. And he realized that God himself is kind of evolving and in process and struggling against the abyss that preceded God. It's a very strange theology. Was but, he smoking anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, he, um, his followers were actually communing with spirit beings. Hmm. And people in the neighborhood would hear and see strange things happening in the house. And these spirit beings who would appear in a number of these early cases would actually reveal a doctrine of universal salvation. There's a case of one man, a George de Beneville, who preached universalism all in the eastern part of the U.S. One of the early pioneers really dedicated himself to be a universalist evangelist. He had an experience where he died. He was declared dead. He was put in a coffin. And he was there for like three days. And he was said he was taken into the realm of the dead. And these spirit guides brought him into this realm. And they showed him that everyone is saved. And there was another case of someone who met Adam in the realm beyond. And Adam mm -hmm. said, all my descendants are saved. And so they believed it because it had been directly revealed to them. Some of the near-death experiences that people have reported pointing in the same direction. People have been told when they are embraced by the light after they've died that everyone that right. everyone is going to a good place. Yeah. So this is what I found in the research. It was part of the evidence. Yeah. And it means that if we are to test the spirits to see whether they're from God, right. First John chapter 4, we actually are obligated to discern whether these are genuine Christ-centered uh, revelations or whether they could be revelation coming from another source. You know, Carlton Pearson started off, it's certainly presented in the movie this way, by saying, look, this is what I heard. I am positive. I'm sure this was God's voice to me. Do you think now that he's kind of moved in a pantheistic direction that he would still argue that that was God's voice? Hmm. That's, I don't know you how know. to answer that one. That's... But he does say that the Bible itself 
there are different levels of inspiration that well, some things are expired, right? He says, yeah, not the inspired, but the expired, expired word of God. Word, yeah. So he's, he's pretty negative on that. And he thinks that Jesus has been misinterpreted. Just as with David Bentley Hart, there is a personal connection here through my friend, Bishop Raphael Green. Raphael knew Carlton. They were together at Oral Roberts University hmm. many, many years ago. And Raphael has been reaching out to Carlton they have an open line of communication. As I said, there's a friendship going back. They ministered together decades ago. But he said that he's not sure if Carlton Pearson still believes in a in like a, a personal God or if it's kind of like the universe, yeah. that, that we become one with right. the universe. And this is a, a theme that you find that universalism is often, um, Kevin DeYoung called it the last rung on the ladder, you know, moving down away from evangelicalism. And I think you see that, that there are people that become universalists and then end up as agnostic. Yeah. Rob Bell is a case where right. he now surfs on Sunday morning. This is a pastor of a large congregation in Grand Rapids. He's not only not a pastor, he doesn't, according to what I read recently, doesn't attend worship, said Hope for Winfrey has taught him yeah. more about Jesus than he's learned from anyone else. So he still uses some Christian language. He was doing this right. sort of passion tour where he talks about crucifixion and resurrection is like general principles of human experience, but it's kind of like a death and rebirth idea applied to everything that happens yeah. in life. So it's not a distinctively Jesus-centered message. In the NPR piece, Pearson is quoted as saying, quote, I want people to ask themselves, what do I believe and why do I believe it? And what's the difference between what I believe in my head and what I know in my soul? Because I think there's a difference. What do you think lies behind that comment, that there's a difference between what we believe in our heads and what we know in our souls? Well, it's, a, it's a emotivism on some level. And clearly, this issue of authority, that he's not following the, the text of Scripture, he's yeah. not allowing that to have a controlling role. Right. You can't make a statement like that and say, oh, and the Bible is my final authority, that I will not affirm what Scripture does not affirm. Another aspect of this is it, it's very Gnostic, that it's knowledge that's direct and immediate in my soul versus any kind of authoritative text. What does Proverbs say? It says, there is a way which seems right to a man, yeah. but the end thereof is the way of death. So there's grave danger, according to Scripture, in following one's own. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, in Proverbs 3. Do not lean on your own understanding. It doesn't say don't use it, yeah. but don't lean on it. And this is one of the fundamental issues, is sort of the overall disposition of the universalist tends to be one of trusting in one's own reasoning, judging God, putting oneself up alongside of God. We're going to be the, the co-divinity or co-messiah and tell mm -hmm. God how he should do things. Actually, Peter tried that once right after he confessed Jesus, said, <laughs> you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Right. And Jesus said, yes, and I'm going to die and be crucified. And he took him, Jesus aside and said, this will not happen to you. So Peter's idea is like, you know, he's going to be the co-messiah. He's going to like advise Jesus on what was going to happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so God reserves to himself the final prerogative yeah. of declaring to us what things are. And, and how much more important it is on matters of eternal destiny. What could be more important than to be correct in what we believe on that? And also, the fact is that everything that we say about the life beyond the present life, it's all based upon revelation. I use an example drawn from early Anglo-Saxon history. It's from Bede's Ecclesiastical History. It's a story of this pagan king and the story of the Christian missionaries have come, and he doesn't know if he should receive them or not because they're preaching new, a new God other than the gods that they already worship. And the man who is a court advisor said, our present life is like that little sparrow that flew into the mead hall 
yeah. from the winter night outside flew through and then it flew across and then it went out the window on the other side. We've all seen that, I guess, like a bird flying through a building. He says, we don't know where we come from. We don't know where we're going for. It's a powerful image, a beautiful one. But he said, if these men who are coming to us can give us new insight about the darkness before and the darkness afterward, then King Sire, we should listen to them. And yeah. the story in Bede is that he did receive the missionaries in England embrace the Christian faith as a result. Mm. But we don't know. We don't we don't we come from darkness, we head into darkness. Isn't it wonderful that we are not in darkness, so that God has given us a light of revelation? And we have to submit ourselves to what God has spoken. Yeah, an analogy I sometimes give is like uh the characters in a novel. Uh you could think of something like uh Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, you know, so Mr. Darcy, what can he know about Jane Austen? What can he know about his own origins as a character. Well, it seems to me there's nothing in his world that he can find about his true origin and the mind of the author. The only way he could have information about Jane Austen is if Jane Austen writes herself as a character in that story and then explains it to him. That's a great analogy. Which is can what I, we basically have in the Can I steal that in the future from you? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure you footnote it. Yes. Rosenthal. Copyright Shane Rosenthal. <laughs> I think you'll agree there's a real problem in the church. A lot of believers sitting in the pews are timid in expressing their faith to others. They know, but don't know at the same time. And feeling cautious prevents them from talking about their faith. Sound familiar? That's why we focus on knowing what you believe and why you believe it. Recently on the program, we've been tackling in-depth questions about what our neighbors believe. I hope that these programs encourage you to take the conversation outside of your home, your church, and your Bible study. It's our goal that you'll become more aware of opportunities you might have to engage with others. Folks, these conversations can be tough, but we have created a collection of resources that will help equip you for that task. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll send you a digital download of our new collection called Know What Your Neighbor Believes. This collection includes our current radio series, several White Horse Inn classic programs, and selected Modern Reformation articles. This collection will give you a deep understanding of God, this world, and your place in it, and it will help you to reach out to others. In order to receive your digital download, head on over to whitehorseinn.org forward slash neighbor or call us at 1-800-890-7556. Right now at whitehorseinn.org, a pastor's report from Italy about the status of the coronavirus outbreak. You know, the news is on, and we see the numbers of deaths just continuing to soar. And then, you know, the streets are very quiet here in Milan, but you constantly hear the siren from an ambulance. The hospitals are just terribly overworked. They are crowded. Uh, the physicians and the medical staff are at great risk. Some doctors and first responders have died. And now they're going to build another huge triage uh, very close to where our house is. To listen to this special report, simply head to whitehorsein.org and look for the coronavirus report from Italy in the featured section of our homepage. Once again, that's whitehorsein.org. Welcome back to the White Horse Inn as I'm talking with Michael McClymond, author of The Devil's Redemption. 
So let me read you one more quote now from Carlton Pearson here in this NPR article. This one's great. Quote, the concept of a God who has terrible anger management problems, freaks out with these tantrums and throws earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunamis and cancer and AIDS on people is a very frightening presupposition. It worried me for years. Not the love of God, not the cross of Calvary, but that eternal torment, not just punishment for the time that's worth the crime, but you eternally. How can mercy endure forever and torment endure forever? One would cancel out the other. What do you think about that? Well, there's an awful lot in that one statement yeah. to unpack. First of all, he's associating everything negative that would happen in the present life as an expression of God's wrath. And I think, first of all, we would want to challenge that, that we live in a fallen world. And uh, those whom God loves that are in relationship to him experience painful and difficult things. I'm reminded of what J.I. Packer said. He said that the wrath of God is not God losing his temper, but it's God's constant, unvarying opposition to that which is contrary to his own nature. It is a perfection of God that he's wrathful. In the same way, if someone could, in our human experience, see a child being sexually abused by an adult and just walk by and not be affected by that emotionally, yeah. would that indicate that you were morally imperfect or morally perfect? Yeah. You see, in that case, wrath, indignation, action on behalf of that child to call the Child Protective Services or call the police somehow to intervene, that would be a mark of actual moral perfection. Now, God sees the full depth of sin in a way that we don't, but it is his moral perfection that he is opposed to that. Otherwise, we would have a an indifferent God yeah. who didn't distinguish between good and evil. And that ultimately, see, this is where Carlson Pearson ends up the, in the gospel of evil, that good and evil are just like there's light and shadow and reality, and we embrace both of them. So it's a very disturbing picture that he gives us. How would he object to the most evil kinds of human actions? The mercy enduring, wrath enduring. I do believe that we can say that God's mercy and love have priority over his judgment. We, yes, we, I would agree with you. I don't put them on the same level because Scripture doesn't say that God so hated sin that he gave his son to die, but for God so loved the world that he gave his son. The, the first expression of God's love was actually the gift of the son himself to be the Savior. So love has priority, but God's loving purpose is willing to undergo the judgment even of the crucifixion of the Son of God in order to bring salvation. But love is the actuating motive of redemption. And we do need to remember that as we're talking about Jesus Christ to non-Christian people. We need do need to emphasize the, the love of God, because if there were no love, there would yeah. be no initiative. And if it's true love, then it can't be thought of apart from jealousy. You know, true love right. won't allow promiscuity. That's right. You know, it's the way God identifies himself. I am a jealous God because he doesn't allow idolatry. So what we're dealing with today is a culture that wants to see God as sort of just sort of smiling over the balcony, the balustrade yeah, right. and looking down. Are you enjoying yourself? That's great. You know, I'm happy. The two thumbs up from the man upstairs. And it's a notion in which God simply accepts where we are, what we're doing right now. It's a notion that excludes any notion of being accountable to God. And it certainly excludes the notion that there is such a thing as a radical evil or depravity yeah. in, in human nature. And if you want an argument for depravity, look at the 20th century. You know? Well, we can look at our present, <laughs> yeah. but I, I fear that the younger rising generation is forgetting some of the lessons of the 20th century. 
There were people around before the World War One that said literally that barbarism would never come back to Western society, that we are so morally evolved now. And then you look at like the poison gas and the machine gun and the World War One warfare and and uh, the atomic bomb and then the, the Holocaust and multiple Holocausts, the Cambodian Holocaust and the forced starvation in the Ukraine. There's things that people don't, don't aren't even aware of that happened. A hundred million people died under totalitarian and communist regimes during the 20th century, more than died during the, the actual period of World War II. So we, we have seen the heart of humanity in this modern age of the 20th century, and it's not a pretty picture. What do you think about Pearson's point that the time doesn't fit the crime? Why should a person suffer eternally for sins committed in a relatively short lifespan? There are a number of ways to respond to this. One would be to say that, as Thomas Aquinas did, that had the sinner been given more time, the sinner would have continued sinning. And therefore, the punishment of hell is fitting and suitable because there was never a turning toward the Lord at all. There's another view that those who are in hell continue to incur guilt, that there is a blasphemy against God raging against the Lord, and that, in fact, those who go to hell never move out of that condition of hostility and opposition to God, and therefore never come to repentance, de facto. C.S. Lewis, of course, famously said that the doors to hell are, are locked from the inside. The metaphor is that, that there is a continued resistance yeah. to God on the part of those who are in hell, not that they are seeking to be reconciled. What about uh, those who regardless of the exegetical issues involved, people like John Stott, who ended up at a place of annihilationism. Do you think that that is a legitimate option within evangelicalism? Well, I, I find it hard to justify biblically. I don't but is, really... it, is it a big enough problem that it ends up becoming unorthodox? One of the things that I noticed when I looked at the British literature, because it seems like the Brits were more drawn toward annihilationism, not just more recently, but even in the 19th century, the Evangelical mm. Alliance had to actually add something about eternal conscious punishment or eternal conscious torment mm. in order to exclude views that were emerging in England already in the 1860s, 1870s. I'm not sure that the position of annihilationism and the arguments that are used there can really be divorced from the universalist arguments. What the, the Evangelical Alliance in the UK attempted to do about 20 years ago was to draw a line and say that the traditional view of evangelicals of final twofold outcome, eternal conscious separation from God, and annihilationism or conditionalism, as some people prefer to call it, that they were on the correct side of the line between heresy and orthodoxy. Universalism was on the side of heresy. What happened over time is that the very arguments that were used for annihilationism got deployed for universalism. And so most of the younger, uh, more progressive evangelicals in England, they became universalists. What Stott argued, and actually you've also find that the late uh, Clark Pinnock argued this, both of them late you know, evangelical leaders, was that if there was any part of all of the cosmos that was not fully embracing the sovereignty of Jesus in a welcoming way, that that would mean that God's purpose in creation had failed. And then they drew the conclusion, therefore, those who rebel against God and are intransigent 
will simply be annihilated. They'll simply cease to exist so that everyone will be finally acknowledging God's sovereignty. Well, you see that argument could very easily just be slightly tweaked and say, if there can't be any part of the universe that's not under God's sovereignty welcoming Jesus as the coming king, then you'd say God has to give further opportunities for salvation to all. And so I don't really, I think the the logic of annihilationism and the logic of the universals are very, very close to one another. So when Carlton Pearson talks about that challenge of, you know, how can mercy endure forever with eternal punishment, the two would cancel each other out. Do you think that's kind of motivated by this idea to see the world in a kind of monistic way? It's all got to be one. We can't have these two different trajectories. Yeah. Everything has to be resolved. Yes. Everything has to be resolved. And that is, in fact, uh, Pearson's position. He is, in fact, a monist in his way of thinking. Do you think it's because of the logic that that whole train of thinking leads you there? Yes. And I think Pearson is not really grappling with the notion of the freely chosen, deliberate rejection of God. You write that in the battle over love and justice, universalists always end up siding with love, as in Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. And you say, since God is not a punishing God, the idea of hell as retribution makes no sense. And Jesus' death on the cross, if emphasized at all, simply becomes an expression of love and not a fulfillment of the divine attribute of justice. That's a common universalistic way of thinking about these things? Yes, and we do get into fundamental issues of justice, and really our notions about divine justice are very much intertwined with our experience of this world and what we think of as justice here. And already in the 19th century, of course, there was a movement away from a notion of retributive justice, that someone is punished because they deserve punishment toward a notion of that punishment should be aimed at rehabilitation. And obviously, if you take that view that the only justification for imprisonment or other kinds of punishment is to improve the outcome for the prisoner. I guess that's the difference between the language of penitentiary and then correctional institution. Very, very (laughs) true. Very true. And C.S. Lewis wrote a, a very interesting essay on this called The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment. And he argued that objective guilt, that culpability implying retributive justice, was the only real justification for locking someone up against their will. They don't Mm -hmm. want to be locked up. Now, if you say, well, we're locking you up for your own good to help you. Well, this is what the Soviet Union did with their political dissenters, right? That's right. And he said, once you're subjected to the, quote, tender mercies, you know, of the authorities, at what point do you get released from punishment? So his point was there was actually something very dehumanizing about this supposedly humanitarian theory of punishment, because it would say that those who are in the position of executing justice, they could do anything they want in the name of improving you and making you better. Whereas he thought that the traditional notion of, of uh, retributive punishment, actually, a number of ways, it respected the agency of the offender. The offender had done wrong. The offender was held to account for what he or she had done served a given period of time, and as, a, as I know people were ex-presidents, they say, I paid my debt to society. You would never pay your debt to society on the humanitarian theory of punishment right. because you'd be permanently subject to whatever the higher authorities who supposedly know what's good for you better than you do. You know, you'd, you'd stay uh, incarcerated in whatever recovery rehabilitative process that they would decide. Yeah. I wonder if you could take this idea of punishment and apply it to the question we were asking earlier about the time fitting the crime. So um, premeditated murder, the premeditated part of it was uh, one week, and the action took five minutes. Mm-hmm. So the time fitting the crime, does that sound like a good thing for me to go to jail for a week and a half? Uh, <laughs> exactly, or, or, yes. Or is there something about the value of the life taken, which is why mm-hmm. 
either have capital punishment or a life sentence. Right. You know, there's something other than just the time being involved. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and Augustine actually, like on so many things, he sort of, he beat us to the punch on that because he, he made that argument that the, the act is committed in a moment, whether adultery or murder and the like, could merit a very lengthy period of uh, punishment. Well, we're out of time for this radio and podcast edition, but there's more to my interview with Dr. Michael McClymond, and you can listen to it right now by heading to whitehorsein.org. Here's a sample. The universalist mind takes this idea that God is love and runs with it. Because God is love, they conclude that all shall be saved. But you write that if God is love, one could just as easily conclude that I'm going to get that job that I just applied for. I think, yeah, if you say God is love, therefore... You could draw, therefore, I will never have cancer. Folks, to get extended editions of White Horse Inn episodes, head over to whitehorseinn.org slash member. Your support will help Christians all over the world to better understand what they believe and why they believe it. The address again is whitehorseinn.org slash member. Also, while you're there, don't forget to look for our special bonus programs related to the coronavirus outbreak in Italy. Just look for the link in the featured section there on the front page of our site. Finally, if you're looking for material to binge while you're cooped up at home, simply sign up for our newsletter and you'll get a free digital download by Michael Horton on justification. For more information, head to whitehorseinn.org newsletter. Thanks for being with us this week, and we'll see you again next time at the White Horse Inn. Stay safe.